Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm Carrie. I'm Isaac. And today we're joined by Antonia. <laughs> Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah. Hi, I'm Antonia Terrazas. That is who I am. I don't know what else there is to say. I'm a friend of Isaac's from seminary. This is probably one of five sober conversations we'll have had by the end of it. Um, <laughs> am I allowed to say that? Don't forget SIG conversations. That's true. Yeah. Wish I also had one of those right now. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Wouldn't that be great? <sighs> uh, I live in North Carolina. I am from Texas. So Carrie and I share that sort of. So Carrie is far more cowboy than I am. Really representing the Fort Worth slash Dallas divide. West side, baby. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm uncomfortable about that. Um, (laughs) What else is there to say that's relevant to the pot? I grew up uh, evangelical slash charismatic slash fundamentalist and homeschooled. And then I've made a pit stop in the in the Baptist world for a while. I'm Episcopalian now. Yeah. I don't know. That seems like what you guys talk about, right? You went like evangelical the, uh, to a to gay Episcopalian pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, and what's hilarious is that I didn't I didn't join the Episcopal Church for gay reasons at all. Actually, the day of my confirmation, I had like this big existential crisis of being like, Am I willing to like join a church that like is kind of okay with gay marriage? I don't know. Like, I guess that, you know, God is leading me here and like God must know, or excuse me, at the time I would have been like, he must know what he's doing and I'll just accept the Episcopal Church worse and all, you know, like about gays. That's hilarious. Well, and for important context here is you're now getting gay married. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yes, 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 yes. I am, I am getting gay married some, I don't know, whenever this hellscape is over. I just want to point out that also because of that, not only did you go on the David Crowder to Sufjan pipeline, but you <laughs> went to a church with David Crowder. That's right. No, I went to David Crowder's church. Like he led led worship, um, you know, at church every Sunday. I actually, you guys talk about Sufjan a lot, and I do not. I'm not on that train, but that's that could be a whole other episode, probably. I'm, I'm there with wow. you. I've never outed myself about being. I'm just. I'm. I'm lukewarm on Sufjan. There's a couple yeah, songs I, I mean, like. Don't don't think the Christmas album's all that special. Well, and what's funny is that like, yeah, there is this overlap, right? Like everybody at the David Crowder church was really into Sufjan. And I thought I was leaving that behind when I became really gay. And that's not true. (laughs) I just don't understand why it continues to follow me. Well, when he's out here writing like gay songs about John the Apostle. (laughs) Yeah. All right. That checks out. That checks out. This is good news for uh, Episcopalians though, that are, you know, cradle and, and wondering if... People are only joining because of gay reasons. We found one person who did it. <laughs> it's not me. I think it's I, not me. I also did not join for gay reasons. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, like I also was in a similar place where I didn't Get know that it. I was gay at the time. Same. So that, it's not why I joined, but you know, I got here. Wait, so how how am I the only one here that uh, that did join for gay reasons, basically because <laughs> of my daughter? I mean, uh, that's one of the reasons we joined is to get out of the uh, the Methodist Church. I mean, I you know I, I don't want to claim that space too much. No, uh, that's amazing. I, know, actually, I find it kind I of amusing that. too. Uh, <laughs> actually, I hear that probably more from straight people, <laughs> yeah. which is awesome. <laughs> oh my gosh, would that be true for I don't know for all of us? Um, amazing. So well, awesome. Antonia. 
You are also welcome on the pod because you're extremely online, like so many of us. So I, I want to hear, like, let's just start off by how are you making it through the pandemic? How, like, what is keeping you alive online? Have you been, have your, has your relationship to the interwebs changed? How are you like staying afloat out there in uh, quarantine Durham? Great, great question. I'm not. I am. I don't know. I am staying afloat, I guess. I think I've always been extremely online and I don't, I can't, it's hard to say if that's intensified or not. But um, yeah, I mean, I've definitely made a pivot to TikTok. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing on there. Um, But there's a lot more cute dog videos and stuff like that because it like in a weird way feels like what the internet used to be before doom scrolling was invented. You know what I mean? Like, um, so that is, is refreshing. I, I'm using the mute function a lot on Twitter. Love that. I've muted weird Anglican Twitter. I've muted, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've yeah. muted every Zodiac sign. Like, you know, I'm just really like narrowed. I'm just alienating both like gays and like liturgical Christians from my, from my timeline in one way or another. So just trying to curate what feels relevant to me without trying to, to dig, put my head under the sand too much. I love that we're already at a point in the internet where we're like back when it used to be before Facebook was a destroyed democracy. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Well, which um, which is more... like E-bomb's world is going to make a comeback oh, or some shit. <laughs> Strong, strong, bad, like the original internet thing. I, I'm too old for you all. They probably don't even know what strong, bad is. No, I know what strong, okay. bad okay, is. Okay, good. Well, wow. that's, it, it's funny though, because like TikTok, I, I enjoy TikTok, but I, I never feel more old than when I'm on TikTok because I'm like, I don't know how to navigate. I don't know how to get from one video to the next. Things just show up. And so it's like a chaotic mm-hmm. energy to it that I kind of enjoy. But also mm-hmm. it's like, I don't know. I, I think I might have to push back a little bit about it going back to the internet uh, with the way the internet used to be because there is no comment section that's more on fire or more ready to tear you down than the teens on TikToks. Uh, TikToks, Jesus. I just called it the, the TikToks. But anyway, the TikToks. Uh, uh, but the teens on TikTok will, they'll, they'll straight up murder you. Um, so I, I live in fear uh, that, I, that I don't know what I'm doing. That I'm going to just find myself in some, some kind of weird TikTok hole and never be able to get out of it again. The point of the last two podcasts is that Brian is in his house and he is afraid. <laughs> I just had to say that. Like, if you ever wondered how we got the name of this podcast, it's, it's me. because Brian lives in fear of being canceled. This, this, this whole podcast is just one giant own on me. It's like, it just keeps my anxiety going up. So every week it's like, oh, Jesus, now we got to do this again. Is this going to be the week that it happens? Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, but well, there's is, an interesting. No, go ahead, Tony. It's just different pull of white male fragility <laughs> for you to be in your house and afraid. And like, so are a lot of far right conservative men, you know, like, <laughs> that's amazing. You're just being true to your heritage, I guess. It's true. All white men fear that accountability will follow them into in all places. <laughs> One way or another. This is this is this is made a, an awkward turn for me. Um, I'm not sure what to do. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, well, it was yeah, nice having you having on. Me on. Yeah, really nice having you on. Uh, next, we're going to bring in Jonathan Merritt. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my goodness! Uh, well, yeah. you know, I I think that is the dichotomy of posting. Though you're either 
posting and getting owned or you're doing the owning. I mean, it's a it's an eat or be eaten world out there. <laughs> owned or get owned. Yeah. Owned. They're either getting dunked on or like getting faves. I don't well, know. This come this this kind of reminds me of the you know last week's conversation. You know, talking about how we got radicalized and um and thinking about that and like, do you think there is something about I don't know, like living in a non kind of like in a power position, like I and I am just by basically who I am. Um, the, the, is there like I'm, I don't know how to say this, but like the the willingness or to to be kind of canceled or the willingness to to know that you can be canceled because of what you might say. I, I don't even know what I'm trying to articulate here, mm. but I actually that's what it's not. It's not fear. It's knowledge, right? Like it's it's kind of like this reality that I know that I can kind of say something with with I can't say things without with an impunity. Right, and I and that's probably a good thing, right? You know, you, you you're saying, saying that that as a as a straight white man, you can be canceled online. I don't know what I'm saying. Nowhere to say. else, or <laughs> I, I feel like this is going to go wrong really quickly. No, I'm I'm genuinely trying to understand because no, I don't fully I, I, get what you're saying. Yeah, I know. I mean, luckily we can just maybe we can just edit this part out, but um, we'll see how it goes. How <laughs> uh, that? Don't you dare. <laughs> No, I'm just saying, like, I, I don't live in fear of necessarily being canceled, but I think that the idea of being canceled, quote unquote, is something that makes me more aware of what I say online. And I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. Like, I, I feel like I'm pretty aware of, like, what's going on. And I try not to step on toes or be offensive or any of that stuff. And, and I think that if you come from a progressive point of view, the idea that you will be or can be um, held accountable for your actions and what you say is, is probably a good thing. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to say. Does yeah, that make sense? Is that I, offensive? No, I, I'm actually, I'm on board with this. I'm following okay. because for, I have two things come to mind. One is, uh, bringing it back to seminary. Here we go. One was in a class about Black liberation theologies. I can't remember which class it was with Ebony Marshall Terman. She made the comment a few weeks into class or somebody did, I can't remember, being like, basically like, white people, like, why aren't you speaking? <laughs> like, why aren't you like talking? And somebody very bravely was like, well, because we're like afraid of saying something offensive. And like, so we're trying, you know, sort of trying to like, they're like saying like, we want to, we want to give, you know, a platform, not a platform, but we want to give space for like the people of color and the black students in the room to like say what they want to say, right? And she was like, and I think she was surprised by that. And she said, she goes, you know, that's, that's good. But also, if you're not able to be held accountable for what you say in this space, then like, what's to keep you from basically fucking it up elsewhere? Because like, like, this is the like, the practice ground for, you know, so in a weird way, like, like, it was an example of like, not speaking up, or not fleshing things out in a student space that um, meant that, you know, these white students that we weren't being trained in like how to engage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, like a, it was like kind of a weird problem to have, but I don't know, I'm feeling a parallel with that. Yeah, and just to be clear, I'm not saying that look how look how brave I am for posting as a straight white male. That that is not what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> I, I get that, but just like being very aware yeah. of what you're saying, and but which makes me think of speaking of pre-gay times. I was about to say pre-gay tribulation. Anyways, oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, let's let's go there. I like that. <laughs> start rewriting the Book of Revelation. Know, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is a dissertation it's waiting all, to happen. All the gay shits in there. 
but I consider myself extremely lucky for being, um, well, for being, what's the word? Confrontation averse enough to not have been extremely online with my homophobic beliefs before I realized that I was gay. Because it's very, or also I'm bisexual, whatever, bisexual erasure, blah, blah, blah. But just have to put that out there. But because it was really recently that I, I mean, it was literally like the summer that Alex and, oh my God, Alex, that Isaac and I became friends that I was like wrestling through a lot of the stuff. I don't know if you know that, Isaac, but um, 2014 was when I was like figuring out what I believed. And then like once I figured out what I, I think Carrie talked about this earlier, like on a different episode, or like once I figured out intellectually, like and theologically what I believed, then I could like grapple with who I was. But like, I'm very lucky that there's not a lot more evidence online of my homophobic like ideas. Um, And I've been online for a long time since at least like 2008 or 2009, like on Twitter. So, so I don't know. I, I feel you in the fear, in the like, fear of getting canceled for something I've said in the past, what I could say in the future. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I just want to be friends. <laughs> and also fight. I don't know. <laughs> the, the psalm that, I, that we come back to on this pod is, God, fight those who fight me. Um, <laughs> anyway, I think that... Uh, shout out to Hannah Bowman, who said something recently that before I left Twitter... So it's recent. These are like the most recent tweets I can remember that she wrote on her page that one of the things that we hold to as people who want abolition is that uh, conflict needs to become like our common property and something that we share together rather than this thing that w- that we try to avoid at all times. And I, I just made me think of that when you're talking about the atmosphere in that classroom. Like if you can't. If you can't say it here, then how can you be expected mm-hmm. to like lead people in in action that comes from it? And I think that um, I think that one of the things about seminary, maybe we can like segue into it, is that that just looking back to it is that the most performative aspects of it really kind of made that almost impossible. But also, I think at Duke, there's always this, you know, they they curated our like spiritual formation so heavily that they're, you know, they're like, okay, this is the place where you talk about feelings and whatever else. But but there was, I think, a lot of it at the time. I mean, I remember being in a class that Antonia and I had together and someone before a discussion of Toni Morrison's book, uh, The Bluest Eye Began, <clears throat> a white man stopping everything to say, I just want to say that I'm terrified right now for the people of color in this room for what's about to be said by white people about this book. And it was just like, uh, I wish I really, I wish that he had said, I'm terrified right now as a white person. Like that would have been (laughs) maybe more authentic and vulnerable, right? Than like the weird acrobatics that he was trying to do, right? Like that would have been an upsetting thing to deal with anyway. But like, at least it would have been more honest, right? But, but, yeah, but it like, was just incredible. Well, let's and be I, fair I though. I remember like, what I wish I had done in that moment was start clapping and say, <laughs> yes. you're a goddamn hero. That's what I was going to say. Let's be fair. That, that's what I want to say. Let's be fair and just acknowledge the amount of courage that that took. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you're, stole my you're joke, a Superman. Isaac. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, Especially for the bluest eye. What a brutal book. <laughs> I know, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, 
But that does lead me to the most important fact, which is Antonio, five years ago at this time, we were in our last semester of seminary, not even at the beginning, but our last, last semester. I know. So, and Brian also went to seminary at one point in the 90s. And then Carrie Aww. is the only person on this podcast who hasn't been to seminary, but I'm sure would love to reminisce. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that you have less debt than we do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So true. Well, so I have I, a different master's degree, but. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, sorry. I, I didn't say that Carrie had gone to grad school. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, equivalent debt. It's different debt. Yours I mean, is less holy. Uh, yeah, Jesus didn't bless that. That's right. <laughs> well, you weren't like spiritually manipulated into going into that debt, right? Okay, so that's a whole other thing. But Yeah, so I think that at this point, five years out, takeaways, how about things you wish that you had known in 2013? Mm-hmm. When you arrived at Duke, that you like if you could go back to yourself to your 2013 self now, and Brian, you can you can play this game too. Things you wish mm. you could tell your pre-seminary self about your post-seminary self, or about yourself during seminary. Oh my god! I mean, a lot. I mean, I think I was radicalized during seminary, which is really weird. Kind of despite Duke Divinity School, not because of it, um, and because of you know. Because we had a pretty great cohort of people, Isaac not included. But <laughs> this is how you I don't know if I would host. tell any anything to that person because everything happened the way it needed to. But I would that person would be incredibly shocked by how queer I am now. Would be I went into seminary thinking that I was going to do something with theology and the arts, quote unquote. I think Isaac and I had a class like that together. That oh yeah, totally. Um, and I was I was there to be in a dick measuring contest that I had lost and so I mean I, I thought that yeah I mean I also thought that I was on the track to become a priest and not that I'm no I'm not now I think I've said enough fuck words on this podcast already but that's not gonna happen but I you know I thought maybe I was heading into ministry yeah just like some really really different I mean could not have seen that I would be getting married to a woman. Couldn't have I mean, yeah, I don't know. There's just also halfway through. So one thing that like changed from the beginning of seminary when I was pursuing this like theology and the arts thing, which doesn't even really exist at Duke, was Ferguson happened in the second, basically around the second year. Yeah. Of yeah. seminary. And that changed everything. I mean... You know, like, and that's when that is right. The moment that I started to take my, my, uh, black theologies, my black theology courses, um, and just really turned everything on its head. And I I ended up getting like an unofficial, like an unofficial concentration in like black church studies, which is confusing for me even now, because like, what am I supposed to like, what is a white Episcopal or a white presenting Episcopalian like supposed to do with the black church studies, a lot of black church studies knowledge in a mostly white context. And I still don't know what, what to do with that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's my rambling answer. Just a lot of surprises. Brian, do you want to go or uh, yeah. should I go next? I'll go. Yeah. I, I don't know. I went and 
I ch- I decided to go to Vanderbilt instead of Harvard because they were, <laughs> Harvard felt like so out of bounds. I wanted to have a little bit of kind of Christian, uh, at least accountability, <laughs> you know, in, in what I was going to do. And so Vanderbilt and, and Duke, which was my other third choice, felt a little too much like I was going to be lockstep into the elder, uh, becoming an elder in the Methodist church. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really want that either. So I went to Vanderbilt. And, you know, at the, at the time, it, it, it was really great. It was honestly, it was kind of a waste of, of the, the years that I spent there because I probably wasn't ready to be there. I was just like trying to, I was doing what I guess a lot of people do in, in seminary, which is I was still in like full on deconstructive, uh, deconstruction phase. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't even start the process of like reconstructing any kind of ideas that were actually unique theologically for like probably 10 years after I graduated. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it still is the, you know, it was the, it's the cornerstone, if you will, of how I think now, just, I guess, having that kind of process, um, even though I don't think I left with a lot of like content knowledge necessarily, you know, I'm, I'm in another kind of seminary-esque program now. And I can tell the difference between, you know, people that haven't been uh, to seminary yet. And that sounds super asshole-ish, but, but like it set me up about knowing how to think and know how to critically think like theologically and go through all that different stuff. And, you know, it was one of those places where I went in kind of having this idea that, you know, after living in the South for a long time, that, you know, it, it didn't feel right that Christianity should be as homophobic <laughs> as it is, but I actually didn't actually have a lot of ways to kind of express that or articulate it or kind of think about that. And Vanderbilt kind of gave that. Th- I left from Vanderbilt thinking, oh. pretty, feeling pretty solidly about a lot of different things that I, going in, I, I wasn't sure how I would be able to articulate those. Um, so just, I guess it was just an exposure to people that think differently, you know, theologically, um, both on the left and the right than myself. And, you know, it's invaluable. I mean, it was not, it's invaluable in the tune of uh, however much money I spend every month. Uh, and, and I just want to note that I also have, I also have the same other graduate degree that Carrie has. Uh, so I'm, I'm double oh. holy here, uh, double holy and double in debt. Uh, Always the master, never the doctorate. Hey, just give me, give me a couple more years. I'm on my way. Um, but anyway, I, so, so it is, you know, it is what it is. I look at my, my transcript and it's like, oh, there was no there's no trajectory through this <laughs> at all. Like there was no thought to this. It was just me trying to like pick classes that mm-hmm. I was trying to, things I was trying to figure out or, or think through. And, and, you know, that served me well, but if I could go back and do it, I would probably do something different. So. Yeah. The biggest thing I want to say to anyone who might be listening to this podcast, thinking that theology and the arts is something that you could study at Duke <laughs> is that it's so fake. It does not happen. It's extremely fake. The, the funniest thing about it is that the professor who's like the head of that is the highest paid professor there. No, no way. Yes. Like, well, and they're always trying to like make his job happen again. Yeah. Which makes sense if he's expensive. Yeah. So uh, he gets paid like 140000 plus a year. And he only spends half the year there. And the other time he's at Cambridge. And um, anyway, just like... And then he's always doing these programs like... Um, the future of theology and the arts. And it's like the same six white dudes that he hangs out with in England coming over to talk about Irish poetry and drinking. It's just, I'm sorry. So, you know, very nice person, I I think. But like, that is a, a major, I know from a person that is a friend of the pod who worked in their like, student life aspect. That's like a major recruiting thing for Duke Div and it's totally fake. So if you're listening to this and thinking about applying to Duke, (laughs) do not do it for that. Because I absolutely went there thinking also that like Mm -hmm. that was going to be a thing. Oh yeah, um, music. Music background over here. Yeah. Mm. And uh, it just isn't. So that... (laughs) We go back in in time and tell. Oh my God. Yeah. Like I would just not 
take those classes. Like I got what I needed out of my also bullshit great text degree. You know what I mean? Like I could I could have taken some pastoral care classes that we also didn't offer. I could have took I took only one preaching class. Like what? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that I took um theology of music at the same time as uh Willie Jennings um class on um on race. Yeah. And like so just mm. <laughs> in hindsight. <laughs> yeah. How different how different those two things. Yeah. So experiences were. Uh but I think the other thing is that I also went to seminary. I mean I, I loved going I loved being at Duke and, and I met people who are like my closest friends now there and like but the funny thing about it is that I was like fully hardcore, you know, United Methodist when I went. And now because of what I learned at seminary, I'm like more Christian than I've ever been because I've done a lot of like deconstructing sort of like gone full Unitarian read Marcus Borg shit before I went to seminary. But I'm so I'm like finally like figured out what I believed as a Christian, but I'm less interested in the institutional church that I've ever been. In fact, like even as a pastor now, like I haven't taken communion in a really long time because of the pandemic and I'm just like, whatever. So um, I'm well, like... How I feel too and I would have been like, I would have... I would have never imagined that in a million years as a like zealous Episcopal, Episcopalian in the beginning of seminary. Like what? Like, I think this is how you start a discourse on weird Anglican Twitter right here is uh, is that you don't have the uh, you don't you don't have the deep kind of like like 16 thread uh, tweet thread about how much I've yes, exactly about how much I miss the Lord's Supper. Um, I, I, I guess I would. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to go any farther on that one. Oh, I'm happy to derail into that if you want. <laughs> You mean that the secret to reviving the Episcopal Church is rediscovering 1700s like quasi Puritan manuals about like not jerking off? (laughs) Okay, well, I I do want to be fair to the people who who do genuinely feel uh, like a a lack in their life because they have not been able to receive the Eucharist. But I am also in like a similar space uh, where I'm like, I guess I don't even care anymore, you know? But I'm also like, I have not been a part of a church community that like I've I've been to church in the past three years but I have not been a part of a church community in three years and so every time I have taken the Eucharist in the past three years it's usually in like a very different context every time and you're like figuring out like are they intention are they intention people are they cut people like you know like what's the vibe going on here and so it's like I love the Eucharist. It's why I came to the Episcopal Church, but I'm also like, I was already lacking in community, which is what makes the Eucharist meaningful to me. Like mm-hmm. not only like um, encountering like Jesus in the flesh, but also like doing that in the context of the community that um, calls you to accountability and to mutual care. And I haven't had that since before the pandemic. And now I'm like, well, who knows? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I don't know where I'm going to be living in six months. Uh, you know, I don't know what church I will be going to this time next year. Who cares? I care. I really, I love that because I actually, as much as, much as I kind of joke never on a podcast uh, or online about the, about the kind of the way people react to that. I mean, part of what I I don't like is in the middle of a pandemic, if that's your focus, like if you're kind of just 
constantly talking about how much you're missing this. It feels like that that kind of... Idolatry? Yeah, it feels weird when there are people dying and there are people that are really secluded um, for whatever reason. And so... That that's the part that always kind of drives me a little bit nuts. But but what you just expressed is is the reason that I wanted to actually I really appreciate and kind of ended up even though after we joined as previous mentioned for the for the gay stuff um, we I, I really what I when I fell in love was because of the, the focus on the Eucharist mm-hmm. and the idea of like when you were just talking about that I was thinking about my home church walking down the aisle towards the altar and with you know the little kids and the, uh, everybody just kind of joining in that line and that sense of community is something that I really do miss and I, I if I think about it too much. I'm probably going to get a little bit of that kind of like sentimental Twitter type mm. stuff that happens. I just think it's weird when that's the only thing that you're ever posting about. That was kind of my point. Mm. I think that neo-puritanism is weird. Oh, wait, oh, the people that are like, I only read the 1700 or whatever prayer book. That that shit. That is just that is just that is like all right, unfollow. Oh. <laughs> I don't need, I don't need that in my life. That's not my well, life. But, are we talking but, about weird Anglican Twitter or what are you... I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm talking about people who are like, oh, the thing that it's going to bring us back is like vital piety or some shit. Like the people who are like, oh, the, the, the only sources we want to draw on and like revitalizing the church are the like same resources that gave us like the eugenics movement. You yeah. know, like... Yeah, fuck that. It's also like white supremacists as fuck. Like, why would we do that? That's, mm. that's what I'm saying. That it's yeah. like, oh, like... Oh, um, I think we're on a different corner of Twitter. I haven't seen that. <laughs> you muted it. It's Thank fine. God. You already muted that out. But, That's perfect. I think I muted those people. Yeah, you did. <laughs> well, and this is this is something where Hannah, second time, maybe we should we should get Hannah on for next week. But uh, you know, Hannah is a real uh, Hannah Bowman is a real like advocate for. We need to be creative about how we're thinking about Eucharist. Uh, and Isaac, I think you and I feel similarly about. Oh, maybe you don't. Maybe maybe the pandemic's changed you. But when at the first, I was pretty much online communion. Nope, not into that. That's just fundamentally and theologically against that. But Hannah's one has been consistently like saying, well, we need to figure this out. We need to. Yeah. We can't get stuck in this kind of like you're saying the puritanical um, side of things. I don't know that she's right necessarily, but... People who get so into like Eucharistic theology are so funny to me because I'm such a low church dirtbag that I have... I I mean, (laughs) don't cancel me, Twitter, but I have led communion. I am not ordained in any way. But like when I was on my mission trip, I was the only person who like was feeling the lack of communion. And so I made Mm. that happen for my team. And... Partly selfishly because I wanted it, but it was an exper- it was a beautiful experience for everyone, I think. And I was not ordained, and I did not have a, a priest or pastor to like bless that. And I was like, whatever, like God's in it, like God blessed it. So people get so into Eucharist theology. I'm like, everybody, like calm down, like we'll buy some fucking grape juice and, <laughs> and get over yourself. I feel a lot of connection with that as. Like, as somebody who did, this is like where my like former Pentecostal self is like, whatever, God's in it. Like, it's fine. Or like God is among us as we share this meal together or whatever. Because I've also, I mean, I've also like done similar things as a chaplain for people who were hungry and thirsty for the Eucharist. And I felt that that hunger and thirst was more important than you know, and, and like connecting with me as their spiritual caregiver um, in that meal was more important than like finding the right, quote unquote, right person to do it slash it not happening at all because of 
whatever reason. Or, so. or the, the whole, there was, a, there was a discourse before too, where people get all worked up in this same field about whether or not somebody should be baptized uh, before they receive communion. It's like, God, get the hell out of here with that. Like if somebody comes up and they want to be, they want to receive communion, mm-hmm. come on, stop, just stop. It's just, it, mm-hmm. becomes, it becomes this game that with people that have, you know, um, their parents paid for them to go to Yale and now they have all these opinions. They don't know what else to do with them. So anyway. Oh boy, that, <laughs> that, was, that was a hot Ooh. take right there. I know. <laughs> it is kind of, I don't know. Well, you guys have all been to seminary though. So um, I think the pandemic has revealed how a lot of like theological conversations have, are, are, are kind of, um, I don't know, maybe redundant or just like they're not super relevant to the the life that we're all currently living. Um, And I guess I'm wondering, like, did you feel that when you were in your seminary education or like, do you feel that in retrospect, like looking back on seminary? I mean, I, I am so glad you brought this up because that was one of the other things that I was um, in my mind saying that I would tell my pre-seminary self. I felt like before because I grew up in the the main line bef- before seminary, like theology outside of John Wesley was just like so absent that when I got there, I was like, oh shit, this is great. And like, just really dove into it. And like, oh, there are all these answers to questions I've always had, but the main line had no interest in helping me. And, and then I like, even went further into that thinking I was going to get a PhD and I went and did this other degree at UVA. And now, I mean, I, I left that, that, um, behind partly because like I was just so disillusioned. Mm-hmm. Now I would not, I don't read theology at all anymore. I can't like stand to do it. Just mm-hmm. like, you know, I'll read older stuff, but most of the time now I'm reading history or I'm reading about the Bible, about scripture, you know, like reading biblical study stuff. But like, mm-hmm. you know, I picked up a, a book by Natalie Carnes over the summer, like her book on uh, the image and I was like, oh, I'm really looking forward to this. I liked her book on beauty and Gregory and Nyssa. And I started reading it. And and I like she had this neologism that she came up with for the book. And I was just like, I just can't make yeah. myself read this shit because who fucking cares? Like, who cares? And I, but you know, I think part of that started with UVA's response to A12 and like the way they treated survivors of the car attack and and the way that they like acquiesced and and enabled Richard Spencer to bring neo-Nazis onto our campus and then denied it later and public records requests. Like, I was just like, you know what? If I think that somehow these like studying theology is going to help like figure it out or like make the right moral things happen, like clearly these places wouldn't suck so much if the secret was just having the right arguments. And so like for me personally, you know, there, there's some theology that's exempt from this, but the, there's a very specific kind of white theology now that that I was really into at seminary that I just could not give a shit less about now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mostly feel that. I think, uh, you know, two weeks in a row where Isaac says something that kind of reorients my my brain a little bit. Uh, the first time I actually met Isaac in person, we were, I was thinking I was driving you to the, to the airport uh, and you were like, yeah, I just, I, when I, we were out there, I think it might've been A12 too, that when you were out there protesting, I looked around, I didn't see any of the professors. And it's like this idea that they're living in this uh, um, uh, white, you know, like secluded tower of academy, of the academy. Uh, so I like, I, I, I read a lot of theology now just because I'm taking classes. Uh, I mostly enjoy it. But, I, but the theology that I'm interested in is the stuff that's going to connect back to what's actually happening. You know, and I think working with teenagers um, yeah. specifically, being able to say, hey, 
you know, here's this book or this thinker that is is going down that same path that you're going down. Um, and just, and I think knowing, I, I also fell into the trap of thinking that they had all the answers. And when I kind of graduated with all the debt and I was like, and no answers, it's like, well, this is some bullshit. Um, but now I'm okay. Just like, I, I like it as a path for, you know, especially for kids when I can be like, they're like, I don't understand why X, Y, Z is happening. It's like, well, here is some stuff called liberation theology run with it and and being able to kind of introduce kids to that. So I find value in that. I also think it's valuable for if you're working in like a parish context, like I am, uh, to be able to just to, to see when somebody is making an argument, I guess, for something that's happening outside the realm of theology to be like, oh, I'm identifying that right now. And I'm going to be, this is how I can redirect that into a place that's not going to be as problematic. So, uh, but I I think you're right. Like I have no, I have no desire to kind of read theological journals or to get into like the minutia of arguments where these people are just going back and forth, back and forth, trying to build uh, a career. I I don't care about that. So uh, I'm mostly on board with you. But just to clarify, because it's a really funny story, and I and I want to get it right. This is on the this story that you're talking about is on the anniversary of August 12th when white supremacists didn't show up, but the state still sent a thousand cops to Charlottesville to police the demonstrations by UVA students and community leaders. And a friend of mine, Rev, Rev Smash, shout out Smash. She and I were standing, like acting as sort of. Oh my God, I cannot think of the word, but basically, like, we were helping, like, sort of direct the protest of these UVA students. And um, the cops had set up, like, a staging area where they were allowed to protest and nowhere else. And so, you know, we knew beforehand that the students were going to leave that area and they wanted the clergy to sort of surround them and, like, put, take up space in between them and the cops. And there was a very famous Christian ethicist standing near me and Smash watching everything that was going on. And then a line of about 200 um, Virginia State Troopers in riot gear walked down the hill at UVA to surround us and form like a shield wall and like announced that they were declaring an unlawful assembly and that they were getting ready to fire tear gas at us. And I turned back around and suddenly this like but and looked at where this ethicist was standing and he had just disappeared. And Smash looked at me and said, guess it's not about theology anymore. And <laughs> it was just like the <sighs> moment. The guy like fucking vanished. I swear <laughs> to God, he like got out of there so fast. It was like, did he like, like drop a smoke bomb? Where did he go? Anyway, it was just, it was an incredible moment. And, and like, I love you, Smash. We got to have her on the pod. <laughs> oh my word. I mean, that's a great, that's a great metaphor or story, whatever you want to call it, or way to describe the academy. As soon as it starts to get real, you know, smoke bomb, they're gone. I, I like, it. and then to be fair, like there are a number of professors that aren't, that don't fit that. But uh, I think that it does, it doesn't, I don't, I don't think the academy necessarily attracts activists as much as it does introverts that want to read books and not be bothered. So. <laughs> they need to find their place too. That's okay. Yeah. Yes, but also like as an introvert who wants to read books and not be bothered, you can all you can you can want those things and also uh, show up to the protest. Yeah, yeah I, I will say that there there are a ton of people at UVA who are doing rad work, and and most of them though are the most vulnerable people, like um, adjuncts, um, you know, BIPOC professors who 
are attractive to universities like this because they do a lot of activist work, but then they get alienated and denied funding when they're in that system. And the grad students who are, you know, having their labor exploited, like who are trying to change that, but have no prospects of getting jobs. And then there are people like this person who's an endowed chair who makes shitloads of money who disappeared. And yet that person's career is flourishing and these other people are are working in relative um, obscurity. So yeah, I would just say that. it's a, I want to be down on the entire academy because I still have a lot of friends at UVA who are doing amazing work there and are like, you know, down to do whatever. And I've seen them there on the front lines. But that one person who is, you know, famous ethicist. Um, yeah. Anyway. Drop the name in the chat. Charles <laughs> Matthews. Uh, oh. Well, okay. I'm just seeing. I'm so far removed. <laughs> well, real heads though. Um, yeah. <laughs> real heads. Real no. heads. No. Yeah. <laughs> I can't say anymore because that's fine. That's yeah. Fine. I mean, yeah. This this is probably almost a cliche at this point. I'm not sure anymore, but you know, the, to me and to not just me, um, theology work is most valuable when it's like out of need, hunger, desire, thirst, and is not a thought experiment, right? Um, so to me, when... Yeah, I mean, there are just so many, going back to the Eucharist, there are so many like times when conversations about the Eucharist and what counts as real or not or whatever is like, mostly about being a thought experiment and not about giving somebody communion on their deathbed, even though I'm not a real pastor or whatever, you know, um, to me, that's when it's most meaningful and important, but you know, that is, that is difficult. I want, I want to, I'm thinking about a story from seminary about communion that both, I, I don't know, like, illustrates some like really precious thoughts around what what Eucharist is. But like they I remember in a in a um Anglican theology class with Lauren Winner, which it was I'm sure it was called Anglican theology because we had both Episcopal, Episcopalian seminarians and uh ACNA seminarians in the same fucking class. Um yeah I had never heard of the Church of Rwanda until I got to Duke. <laughs> The diocese of Rwanda. <laughs> anyway, that's a whole that's a whole other issue. But but the Eucharist came up a lot. Well, I mean, obviously it's an Anglican theology class, but it came up it came up a lot in a context because um, a the Eucharist in that community was thought to be this thing that we could unite around the both the Anglican the American Anglicans, aka homophobic assholes, and the um, Episcopal seminarians um you know like well it's okay we can like all come together around the eucharist whatever and that is this like binding agent or whatever and then also in the context of this class we taught you know somebody brought up like this common metaphor um that gets brought up around the effects that taking the eucharist has on a person spiritually and that is that well you know as as water over a rock over time shapes the rock, so too does the Eucharist over time shape 
the, the communicants or whatever into perfection and blah, 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 blah. And the, the most useful thing that, uh, that Dr. Winner said to that was like, does it? <laughs> but does it? Though? Lauren hates a bad metaphor. I know. It's, it was probably the best thing I got out of my MFA because she was right? also my professor. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, um, but she was just like, well, and it, but to me, a reveal, it's like, yeah, it's just so interesting because that, that betrays like this magical relationship to the Eucharist, right? Which like maybe Anglicans believe in magic. I don't know. Maybe I want to sometimes, but like slave owners took the Eucharist. They took the Eucharist on slave ships. Like, was it working on them? Was it not strong enough? Like, I don't understand. Like, what is the... Anyway, sorry. That is, I've been thinking about these things for a long time and I don't know what I think about what the Eucharist does to me anymore, but I miss taking it with my weird church. So that's where I'm at. I mean, who would have thought at the end of all that that the ACNA folks would have ended up getting to claim Harry Potter? A tough blow for the Episcopalians. (laughs) For real. For real. Yeah. Oh, I just realized that. That's true. (laughs) In the battle for Harry Potter, the gay Episcopalians lost out. (laughs) Uh, oh man okay i i will say this like in defense of the church it it was the church that um that taught me that stuff and theology didn't um seminary didn't and uh the the point that we're making about like you know the the lived reality of it on the streets and when i was in seminary i didn't think Mm. there was anything the church was going to teach me um and i think that the other reality was that you know, when I was in seminary, the lure and power of those things was so uh, was so strong that when I heard a challenge by James Cohn, who came into Duke Divinity School and said, "You've got to like let go of all the primary sources you've used." Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, what the fuck? Like <laughs> that can't be done. Like you know, he was basically like, "Stop reading Karl Barth." Which fine, fuck him. I never really got into that, even though everybody at Duke was in love with him. But he was also like. Everybody before him too, gone. And I remember at the time being like really fucked up about that and just not really not ready to hear it until later when I was in those positions where there were cops running down the hill and it wasn't about theology anymore. And that that was when I was like, oh yeah, James Cohn was right. <laughs> but that was not something that seminary was gonna what Duke anyway was going to teach me. Um as uh as a white dude um so yeah i think that that was also a part of it too that um that i think is so so tricky about formation right because i mean the exact setting you're talking about antonia and everything else um you know jennings talks about this in his book but just like i mean seminary is forming you and it's not always for good yeah, I mean, and you know that's difficult because, like, who am I to like craft a seminary? <laughs> like, um, you know, whatever syllabus or education, and and also like, you know, I think this last year has told us that like you can't prepare for everything. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. maybe you can like be trained in 
how to think or how to engage or how to identify things, kind of like what Brian was saying earlier, like how to say, oh, this is like what your line of thought is. But like, I don't know what kind of formation you could have prepared you for that experience in Charlottesville either. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, it or the church formed you enough to be where you were, you know, who could say, I don't know. I do. I love the image of, or just imagining, even if it's not uh, literal, of Isaac standing there and, and the the, uh, the state troopers running down. And the first thought that comes to mind is like, James Cohen was, was right. I, I love that. So, um, but I do think, I think that, <laughs> I mean, but I think what we're kind of, what we're circling around that I really appreciate too, is that idea of like, it doesn't have to be COVID, but it's like, it is the idea mm-hmm. that leaning, thinking back and leaning back on having good theology, which I think is actually important isn't necessarily going to be the thing like that's going to allow you to pivot and change. And it might be the thing that actually help, helps you kind of, I'm and going back to Elle's conversation about being able to hold on to things that are actively uh, harming other people or dying and not to be able to kind of separate you from the, from, uh, from them, separate yourself from them. So like, it's like that's, that's kind of, that was the, one of the big pivots for me was being able to be like, Oh yeah, the, the, the theological canon of seminary is highly Western and white. Who knew, who thought, who knew? Uh, turns out lots of people uh, other than me. Uh, but it's about being able to have that kind of experience and to be able to be able to say, well, we don't need this, right? We can, we can cut this part out because it's not essential to what we're doing now. Somebody in a class just recently said, I, didn't, I don't need the Bible to tell me that slavery is wrong, mm-hmm. right? Or, um, or that homophobia is, is wrong. So I, I feel the same way about theology. Like we don't have to necessarily find our answers in those places if they're not the right answers. Hmm. Man, even this many years out of deconstruction, that idea still still scares me. <laughs> Which one? Which one? <laughs> Which yeah. I, well, it's funny warfare. because yeah, you said like we don't need the Bible to tell us that slavery is wrong, and I was like, okay, but it it does tell us that slavery no, no, is wrong. I'm, um, I'm saying like, but I'm saying like the parts where people use the Bible. To like, I'm thinking in like Paul, right? Or where they where they try to they do. We don't need to. Yeah, I sorry. I, I, was, I get what you're saying. It's like we, you don't need to proof text your way into thinking that something that is inherently bad is is bad. Right. I don't need the Bible to tell me that my daughter has worth. Mm. The Bible does tell me that my daughter has value and worth, right? But it's I, I don't I don't need to find that in. The, yeah, I don't know. This is this is this has not been a banner podcast for me. I've I've, I've lifted up the posting, uh, the fragility of white male posting. Uh, I've, I've done a lot of stuff today, but I think that I just think that you know that stuff that like there's there's a certain amount of liberation or freedom, whatever you want to call it, and being able to say, you know what, if that's not right, it's not right, and if it's not if and if and if this form of Christianity or whatever propagates that, then I'm out. I don't need it. So it's just like not being not having the need to hold on to that stuff anymore. That's what I was trying mm-hmm. to get to. Well, I mean, I think this is a struggle in my own life. And so I don't want to um, psychologize all of um, weird Anglican Twitter into it. So I'll keep it to myself, which is that a struggle in my life is that I have to remind myself often that my intellect is not going to save me. Like, it's uh, it's not how much I know about the Bible or how many times I've read it or how many theologians I've read that makes me ultimately like worthy of God's love. It's the fact that God loves me and that's it. So... Yeah, I think that um, it's not about the args. Um, it's if if it was just about having the right arguments, then seminary would be the best place on earth because theoretically, that's where you just spend time learning the right arguments. Um, Isaac's like I said this already I, like thirty minutes ago. <laughs> now we're just all coming around to his point. Uh, you already said that it's not about the arguments, and he's like I'm glad to join the podcast again. Anyway. 
You know what though? But the I, I will go back, Brian, and and just say one thing that that Valerie Cooper talked about in a class I had to do because the yeah you you know you may not need um, the Bible to say that that Nora has worth or or that slavery is wrong, but if it didn't, um, there'd be a big problem. So like, <laughs> right? Um, we were talking about the Mormon Church once, and she just went off like how she was just like the Mormon Church is. You know, because baked into their, you know, creation story is the ontological inferiority of black people just should never be taken seriously as a religion. And she was like, it's the only one where we can say that this is something that they have like an account for why my skin is black is because I have been cursed. And she's like, yeah, I mean, I agree with her. You know, the whole Mitt Romney thing about like going back to the 2012 election for absolutely no reason, but just like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when he was like, oh yeah, well, like the Mormon church like sort of apologized for that and when he was in his like late 20s. And but that means that like until his late 20s, he was thinking like, oh yeah, that's just that's why black people exist right. because they didn't fight hard enough in this cosmic battle and God cursed them and made them inferior to white people. Like if that was the case, the Christianity should not be a thing that we should all be like fine being a part of. So I think yeah. that, the stakes uh, are higher than like Pepsi being okay. You know what I mean? Like, yes, yes. I, I feel like I need to clarify my position that I, I agree with all of this. I'm not yeah. saying uh, that the yeah. Bible doesn't speak to any of that. I'm just saying like, I think there's a place where who somebody mentioned about doing like mental or theological gymnastics or something. Like, I don't think you have to do those those theological gymnastics to mm-hmm. get to this place in the Bible. It, it's it's already there. I'm just mm-hmm. saying like, I, I don't want to have, I'm not going to have the conversations like that uh, debating uh, or having arguments about that shit with people who are never, who are going to end up joining, uh, you know, ACNA anyway. It's like, I don't, just stay over there in your corner. Um, I'm going to focus on these kids that I actually care about and want them to know that they're loved. Um, and if that means that I'm just going to engage that in a different way, then I'm going to do that. I, that so I just want to make sure, I, I, I hopefully people already know that that's, my, that I'm not coming out and being like, I just want to make sure. So anyway. No, I think we're all agreeing. I think yeah. we're all agreeing. But it, it was a good clarification though. Yeah. But I think the pull though of mainstream conversation is that, yeah, you have to do those things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me now, I'm in a place where like I was in a church that where I was doing all this amazing work with people I cared about in, in a queer affirming setting that, that was about liberation and justice. And now I'm not there. And a church like that doesn't exist where I am. And to me, the thing it's made me realize is that it's like, Okay, if I can't have that, then then maybe I don't have to be a part of the church, and maybe I don't have to be a pastor because like local community and context has become more important to me now than like denominational affiliation, and that's not something that I would have said pre seminary at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that checks out. I I have said to folks recently, like if it weren't for my really strange Episcopal church that has drawn a lot of folks from like lots of different other denominations like yeah maybe i would still be episcopalian maybe not but it is that particularity of community that has changed since at least the beginning of seminary when i felt very strongly episcopalian um and they're still my people but it's not with the i'm out of the honeymoon period of it i think (laughs) so yeah but i i think that this is it's challenging, right? Because I know so many folks who like folks that I care about and 
and have respect for that are like, well, I'm going to join the Catholic Church and like, despite the pedophilia stuff and the misogyny, like, it's still the church. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm just like not in a place where I can be down with that. <laughs> you know, the the I just learned recently that the Diocese of Knoxville is harboring a cardinal that like covered up pedophilia in the Diocese of Philadelphia for decades. And he's like lives down here with our with the Catholic bishop in Knoxville. So like ugh, like <laughs> you know. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, but I, yeah. And I also know that a lot of people could say that about Christianity as a as a whole. So that's a whole other rabbit trail. Yeah, I was going to jump in with a naive uh, naive church take, but I don't know if I want to now. Uh, but I, I'm going to do it anyway. What stopped me before? Um, I, You know, I, I think that, you know, for both of what you just, uh, Antonio and um, Isaac, what you just talked about is like, and again, this is high in the sky, me being an optimist and maybe naive, but it's like that. that's actually the reason why having that kind of like institutional memory of what the church can be is actually also really important. And I, I know it's it's like not maybe not possible in a particular context, but I think having people that like and so yeah. to throw like some some props your way—that's what the kids still say, right? Props, um, but if Isaac. But it's like you know when you were going down to the border, I was like that was like that was pretty in, influential in me finally being like you know what I, I I know I can do that as a layperson, but like seeing clergy actually doing that kind of stuff is like okay that's actually how I think it should be done. Like actually going down there and kind of putting your theology in practice. Um, and so like, that would be my, and even if it's not for YouTube, but for maybe for anybody else that might be listening, is like that having an institutional knowledge of what the church can be is is important and being able to carry that into different communities. And that's that's where I kind of like, I really am um, um, pro local church. And I, and I think the church, there's something that can be reclaimed about the church. And it's for that reason is that most of my good um, religious kind of experiences or even most of my good theological opinions come out of being in community with people. Sometimes people I don't disagree, I, I don't agree with, but for the most part, people that are kind of like stumbling forward together. And, you know, I, anyway, so I hear that stuff and, and I hear like what you did in Charlottesville, Isaac, and I think, okay, well, that's, that's, a, that's a model that, we can, that can be taken forward. It might not be this particular church, but my hope is always that it is something that can be kind of reborn in other churches and other places. So. Yeah, I would just say it's, it's so rare. You know, uh, all the young clergy that I was in Charlottesville with, there's like one person left and he's getting ready to move out too because like that work, like sustaining that work was so intense for people that he, we, we basically all burned out and moved on. Um, so I, I, I think that folks who are doing that... I think that our generation has to learn how to sustain movements. You know, the the Black Lives Matter movement from the summer is is going to be. It'll be interesting to see where that goes because I think that that work is like so demanding because the forces against it are so intense and concentrated and powerful that we have to learn how to how to sustain each other in that work, or else it just like blazes out. And um, so, yeah, that's that's a challenge for our generation going forward, and. You know, I, I think that um, I, I do hear going back to what Antonio said about like, oh, well, people just say that about Christianity in general. The good news is the good news or the bad news is that 
everything sucks, right? Like, you're like, oh, <laughs> where are we going to go? The Democratic yeah. Party? Like, I know, right? <laughs> See, I was, I was trying so to I, end. I was trying I to end on a to, positive note. I knew it was going to come back around. I was trying to be all hopeful. And then I, I was like, it doesn't matter. It's all crap. No, no, no. But I just mean like to, to I mean, that that is right. Like my, you know, yeah. my wife is in a Christian because of this very stuff. But it's like also every other human community blows ass too. So it's like to get back to to a point that Carrie makes all the time is that like, you know, ultimately the the place that I choose to fall is like with the with people who love Jesus who are trying to do it in the right way. But like also trying to have the patience and endurance to know that if that local context doesn't create that, that I'm that I no longer have to like force myself to be inauthentically in a space where it doesn't exist. Um just to say that I'm a part of a church, yeah. you know? And I think that that, for me, that's something that post-seminary, pre-seminary, um, I never would have said. So it's a, it's a big change for me. That's funny because that's actually why I wasn't in a church for like two years before the pandemic is because I was like, oh, it turns out that if you have a panic attack every time you go into a church, no matter how much you want to be a part of a community, you, mm-hmm. don't, you don't have to do it. You don't have to go. <laughs> It turns out that maybe Jesus doesn't want you to have a panic attack every Sunday. But then how will you be sanctified, Carrie? <laughs> I mean, like, I did gen- I did feel a genuine lack in that community. And I did want more. And I was um, visiting churches in New York where I had just moved before the pandemic uh, because I was, like, finally ready to step back into that space and not, like, mm. cry every Sunday. Um, and then the pandemic happened. <laughs> <laughs> but... You know, it was, it's, it's just funny that it, it's funny that it took Isaac like seminary and like a really harrowing experience to get there. And I had to write like one bad blog post. <laughs> you just, built, you just build different. That's all it well, is. Just build different. You know, I had to overcome 30 years of being raised as a pastor's kid. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay, but, you know, so, oh, no, go, go ahead. ahead. Go. Oh, I was going to say, do we want to have a fight corner today? What are we fighting? Do you have well, one? I wanted to see if maybe you had someone on your mind. Otherwise, I have some contenders. I mean, I would just fight all of weird Anglican Twitter. But I'm, <laughs> if you have something prepared, let's do it. I don't really have, I don't have something prepared per se, but I would, li- I don't think we've formally done it. So I would like to put Acna in the fight corner. Oh, <laughs> yes. okay. We can do this. I can do this. <laughs> Oh my God, Where? how do we fight? What is this? Well, we okay, do? so Fight Corner is basically just where I challenge someone to fight me in the Chili's parking lot, <laughs> uh, which is the accepted place to get in fights in Keller, Texas. Correct. Um, and I would, I would like to formally invite all of the bishops of ACNA to fight me in the parking lot. You oh. can probably do it all at once. Let, let's include some of the priests. You. We should include some of the priests too, some of the better known priests. Well, yes, but I am, I'm thinking specifically of the fact that the bishops released this like crazy homophobic statement recently, which we will not link to. And I do not recommend looking up, but, uh, the statement was like, just so you know, all gay people are sinful, even the ones that we're technically supposed to like, because they're being celibate. And to that, I would say, (laughs) if you are side B and you think that your celibacy will save you in the eyes of straight Christians, have some gay sex about it because it will not save you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. And I have not read that thing. I mean, I think I want to at some point. I have lost the ability to read also. Um, Hard, Sam. 
I mean, that was actually true, like just post grad school. And then like, you know, this past year has really solidified that. Yeah. Just fuck acne. Um, and like here, I have two main, two main thoughts that spring to mind. Number one, I feel like acne folks, including people I went to seminary with, will say that their division from the Episcopal church, um, was a matter was along the lines of biblical authority or whatever. And it was along the lines of biblical authority on this one particular issue of gay fucking. Like, what the fuck? Like, it's amazing how that works. And maybe, and like with a side of... Um, uh, misogyny. With a side of misogyny, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, what's that word where we hate women? Yeah, along the side, with a side of, of like women can't be priests or whatever. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, gay people not having sex because straight people don't want you to, they will continue to, straight people will continue to have affairs and like get divorced and like not give a shit about marriage, like getting married in Gallenberg, Tennessee at a chapel, like a drive through chapel, no matter what you do. So, oh yeah. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Maybe I should do that. I want to do a good drive through married. I, I, um, and I feel like I need to apologize to Carrie right now because I was not aware of the side A, side B. And I, I texted Carrie and was like, do, and they were very, uh, very, uh, what's the word, gracious in letting me work work through. <laughs> like, what the fuck is this? Well, it's, it's kind of like weird terminology, but so it, maybe we should add a side note that side B means that uh, you are a gay person who identifies as gay and is also celibate because you actually do think that being gay is sinful, but that also God created that, you in this... Sex is sinful, yeah. In the, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, in, created you in this orientation, but is asking you not to ask act on those thoughts. If you are a straight person and you identify as side B, no, <laughs> not how it works. And that's just regular homophobia, my friends. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Amazing. Um, so that was my first thought about acne is that like, go fuck yourself about it being about a biblical authority writ large. Um, and the second is... Oh, shit. Second... I don't know. Maybe curious things to say and I'll like bring it back. I think James K. Smith is a part of acne, isn't he? Is he? I've no he seems oh. really reformed to me. Yeah, but, I think he's... I yeah, think he's, isn't he super into... Oh, that one dude he wrote like an incredibly long book about. Oh, yeah. Kuiper. He is really into him, but I'm pretty sure he's Akna. And I just want to say he looks like Mr. Tumnus. Mr. Tumnus oh, ass. Oh, oh, oh. Other, I, I remember my thing. Um, Mr. Tumnus ass. He um, teaches at a school that takes money from Betsy DeVos and Eric Prince. Okay. Fuck um, Calvin. Yeah, fuck Calvin forever. Except Don. Um, but the the other thing that pisses me off about ACNA slash conservative Episcopalian slash whoever, probably Methodist, Isaac, pipe up if you want. Um, Wesley and Covenant Association, you've already been invited to the fight, fight corner. <laughs> Get fucked. Yeah. <laughs> um, is the, um, the talking point of using the global south part of the church or like whoever, this, like not America. Of hold on, let me make sure I got this right. Of like, of it being like Western supremacy for us to be not homophobic because Africans 
believe that gay people are wrong. So like we shouldn't push our Western ideals onto like the African church in, sorry, yeah, the African church, Anglican or Episcopal church or whatever. When in reality, it was like white fucking Christians who exported homophobia to other parts of the world. And like, we did, like, we did that to them. Like they, this is not their, like their Holy Spirit is not like, we think gay people is wrong. That was, you know what I mean? Anyway, sorry. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean like the global South doesn't, but it's infantilizing to the church and the global South to think that they uh, don't have like nuanced theological opinions on all of these things. And also that their theological opinions just happen to like line up with your homophobia. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, we, well, we also, it's the only time we care about black people in the in that context <laughs> is to use them as mm. like a fucking uh, prop to uphold our, you know, the homophobic idea of who I was talking. So, one hundred percent true. And ACNA's very existence is proof positive that it's like okay, we're going to use you know the diocese of Rwanda to get what we want, but we also, by the way, do not want to take orders from African bishops, not even for one second. So let's create our own thing. So the Wesley Covenant Association is like, oh, we're going to be a global church until there are black bishops telling white Americans what to do, and then suddenly, oh well, we just have like a difference of opinion about some things, and they'll go their own way. So one hundred percent, that is like the biggest load of bullshit. They do not care, and they're out. I mean, I know that. Wesley Covenant Association people are out there like bribing African delegates to general conference yep. to vote against LGBT inclusion. So, um, well, yeah, it, if just we're gonna fuck all that shit, it's all fake. And I, if we're if since ACNA is in the fight corner, I have to bring up uh, Tish Harrison Warner and Liturgy of the Ordinary. I, and, and I have to like also any Episcopal priests who uh, are constantly propping that book and her up, stop it. You're 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 guilty by association on that one. Hold on, I gotta. I got to look this up. I think I know who this is. Um, She's a priest in the Acne Church and wrote a book that a lot of Episcopalians like, Liturgy of the Ordinary. And it's fine. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But it's the same thing. It's like, at some point, we if we're going to be about that, we don't need to be propping up the books and works of uh, people who are a part of a schism. So there you go. And if you're interested in a similar book that is A, much better, and B, written by a communist lesbian, you should just read Take the Spread by Sarah Miles. I was, about, oh, I was there it is. about to say that, like, if you want a different book with a picture of a fucking sandwich on it, then you can <laughs> read There's Take all, the Spread by yeah. Sarah Miles. And one that doesn't have a forward by Andy Crouch. I mean, come on. that That's just pulling <laughs> off your own man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right there. Much better. Much better sandwich cover. Is this? Hold on. I'm just, like, holding up pictures of the... Who wants to see that naked jelly on your book cover? No one. This is this is great podcast content, though. However, uh, this is like wheat bread on Liturgy of the Ordinary, and Miles has white bread, and there's a lot to say there. Say an, an open face peanut butter and jelly is disgusting to me. <laughs> why would, the cursed concept. <laughs> like why? Oh man! Now I just want to take a deep dive and like analyzing this two different. Yeah, these two different <laughs> covers. Man, thank you for that. Thank you for that um, information, though, because I felt sus about that uh, about that book, and I didn't really realize I, who it was written. You know, and I, I don't know her. 
whatever. That's fine. That's fine. But my thing is, it's like... She's chosen the wrong team. So that's all we need to know. And and at some point, you have to stop being, say, I'm going to try and play both sides. Uh, And I think that Episcopal, uh, Episcopalians and especially clergy should have to, they should publicly be able to say, look, she's, she's wrong on that part. I might like this book, but how does that being wrong on that one thing and that one major thing influence what she's writing and whether I'm going to put that book into the hands of a kid or a parent that has not out yet. Um, so fuck it. I, that's just miss me with her. I, I don't want yeah. to do it anymore. Well, and talk about being <laughs> formed, right? Like who, you know, like not the, I mean, I don't know how directly like homophobia or like oh, unwillingness to take a stance about these things informs like her idea of literature, liter- liturgy in the ordinary. But like, but why do you stay, right? Like, why do you stay? There, I know that there would be, there ha- would have to be an easy transition for her if she wanted to. We don't need to make the podcast about this, but from her into the Episcopal Church. Uh, I, so I, but that's always my question. Why do you stay? And if you're not going to answer that publicly, then I'll, I'll just make my assumptions. Anyway, sorry, I cut you off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, no, that's, that's correct. I, yeah, this is what Fight Corner is about, I, as far as I know. No, nope, nope. shout out to, um, to... I don't know. There, there's no like right way to put this, but at the last general conference, when the traditional uh, people, WCA crats, were going to make their arguments, when it came up, when the one church plan came up for discussion, and we had to have a discussion about like those same clobber verses from the Bible and everything else, who did the traditional people trot out to make their arguments? For white women. And I just want to say to them, you're not safe in the WCA. They do not want you to be ordained. Get out now. But mm-hmm. I was just, you know. Yeah, like the, the gif of, um, was it Whoopi? Like, girl, you in danger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Women's yeah, ordination does not matter to people in the WCA. To the, like, to the Thomas, whatever his last name is, I cannot remember. And I don't, I'm not going to look it up. He does not care that women are allowed to be ordained to the UMC. They will change it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a slippery slope in both directions, right? Like, of course, those things are related. Like, if you're, if you're homophobic, you're probably, um, well, you're probably racist, but if you're homophobic, (laughs) you're probably, you're probably sexist, right? And like, and it was, I mean, I'd have to find the, like, the step to back this up, but like, when it came to the schism between the, um, the Episcopal Church and the Anglicans who broke off, um, a lot of the, you know, the early fishers uh, were back in the 1979 prayer book when, you know, and, and in that time when like women's ordination was like starting to be a thing in the Episcopal Church later than other denominations. And, um, and that's when, yeah, that's when those fault lines started. And then, you know, it was just, it was all that much easier in 2003 or whatever. Um, so. Yeah. I mean, we don't have to go any further than Rod Dreher lamenting the uh, uh, US versus Oral Roberts case decision by SCOTUS that um, Oral Roberts couldn't receive taxpayer money because they didn't allow uh, interracial couples to date. Like, and him being like this, you know, this just set a precedent that now we're seeing backed up in the court saying we can't discriminate against LGBT people in our practices. It's almost like those things are... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, and so we've gotten a little bit far afield from ACNA, but we have gotten plenty of ACNA slander in. So you're welcome to meet me in the parking lot, ACNA bishops. Do it. I'll join you. I will fucking go. And I will just call all the ACNA seminarians I went to school with. We can, we can go to. Yeah, I mean, I'll go. <laughs> I'll fight anyone. <laughs> Like I have not, I have not slept in like three days. I am on a different plane and I'll just, you know, I'll smash a Red Bull and we'll get going. Yeah. Give me the Southwestern egg rolls and we'll fucking go. Barry's first human contact after the pandemic is going to be a fist to a face. It's just like a long, long line of all the people I've challenged to a fight on this podcast. Ringing a doorbell. They open the door. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Last time I was even close to getting in a fight was in a gas station in Biloxi, Mississippi. And like, so it'd just be an incredible, like, <laughs> incredible follow-up. Lots of questions. I know. It was, a- that was because uh, I was an adult on a pilgrimage that I took my youth group on. And uh, one of the girls who was not uh, in my youth group, but was on the trip, uh, was trans and was clocked by a man in this gas station who started following her around in a really threatening manner. And I am, for people who've never seen me, I'm six feet tall and I'm not skinny. So I was then following this man who was following my youth around. Uh, and uh, yeah. yeah, anyway, my, thank, thank the Lord, my youth did not understand what was happening because she is one of the most oblivious people I've ever met. So it was just like, she she did not feel like she was in any danger, but I, because I was raised in the South, I was like, this is not going to end well for someone. And it might be this man. (laughs) Well, I'm triggered by the information that Carrie's six feet tall. (laughs) (laughs) You miss all kinds of, this came out on Twitter the other day with previous guest Sarah Zar. So you you, got to get back on Isaac. No, I'll never get it. back on. Anyway, yeah. so yeah, the, the first thing I do after this is just going to be a list of people who have signed up to fight a six foot tall non-binary lesbian. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Well, Texas forever on that note. <laughs> Texas forever. I want to, I thought you were going to bring up something Texas related to put in the fight corner, but I can't think. Well, actually related to ACNA, I will also put the entire the entire diocese of Dallas in the fight corner because they're basically ACNA. Yes, I just count them as ACNA. Yeah, I mean, it counts, yeah. Um, and I also just like, I, I can't remember who was talking about like, uh, maybe it was Brian talking about like, well, if you're not willing to, yeah, if you're not willing to like get out, then like, what the fuck are you doing? About I think it was about Tish. And that's kind of how I feel about male seminarians in the, in the um, diocese of Dallas. And it's like, okay, so you act, you know that like no woman has been ordained in this diocese for years and years because by, you know, uh, yeah, just sort of by default, they just don't think that it's okay to let it ordain women, right? So like, then why are you getting ordained under this bishop? That should be a, a big old red flag for you, Betty. And also, why do they only send seminarians to like Duke and also... Because we're which, in bed with the A, yeah. Mm-hmm. And which, you know, we can set aside like the Duke is whatever, but they only send their seminarians to Duke and we have Episcopal seminaries. <laughs> yeah. No, there's a reason for that because they're homophobic and out, like they can't send them technically to Neshota House. So they have to send them <laughs> to Duke, which is like the best alternative, I guess. 
to being indoctrinated in uh, Anglican white theology. So, anyway, yeah. So, yeah, Diocese of Dallas included in ACNA. Bye, Bye. We, we've made a big, big circle because I'm pretty sure on the first pod, the very first person in the fight quarter was the Methodist bishop in Dallas. Well, uh, Methodist bishop of the Central Texas Conference, which Dallas yes. is not included in. Oh, interesting. Because <laughs> it's in the North Texas Conference, yeah, which is oh. actually weirdly slightly, slightly more progressive. And I say slightly. But the good news is none of them are going to have to travel that far to meet you. Plenty of no. Chili's parking lots, I'm, I'm assuming, in, in the like, Texas I metro. I refuse to enter the city of Dallas without reason, but this is a good reason. Get <laughs> some homophobic ass. <laughs> some homophobic ass. That makes sense. In cowboy boots, apparently. Who knew that there was, like, here Antonia is, like, casting aspersions on cowboys. Like, I didn't think that was legal for Texans to even go there. Well, for... I'm from Dallas, so that... That'll do it. Like, <laughs> yeah, we, I don't know. There's a reason there's a tension between Dallas citizens and Fort Worth citizens. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Because mm. Dallas people think they're better. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, anyway, we should weird. land the plane. Yeah. <laughs> we should. Yeah. We should land the plane because the rest of us don't live in Texas and we're all fine. All right. Um, all takes have been revealed. <laughs> I'm going to drive to Tennessee. I was a power move. Tennessee, don't talk to me. I know, a power move right there. Tennessee ass over here. At least I have Dolly Parton to back me up, okay? Isaac's talking about Cain being mayor and some uh, pedophile priest living in his, all all this stuff. And then he's like, yeah, but Texas. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Didn't claim I was perfect, just claimed that we have Dolly. All right, anyway. And she is uncancelable. She That's may be true. the only person who cannot get canceled in history oh. besides the BVM. Say Dolly. <laughs> <laughs> Just stop recording. <laughs> stop recording, Brian. All right. Thanks for doing this, Antonia. Yeah. yeah anytime. Wait, do you want to shout out your stuff? Where can people find you? Uh, shout out. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Antonia Terrazas. Just my first and last name. Yeah, that's all I'm willing to shout out. My other, I don't have any other projects that I'm working on besides getting through the day. So, you know. Hell yeah. Where we're at. Full city. Yep. Full city strong. 